I'm turning this morning to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at the final verses of this chapter this morning, Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. And we're going to be dealing with the question this morning or the subject of who are my brethren, who are my brethren. I want to conclude our study of Matthew 12 by considering this incident, although very brief, uh, that Matthew records at the end of this chapter. For the most part, it is unrelated uh, to the discussion about the evil spirits, uh, about the contextual disputes and arguments with the Pharisees, but it is very, very instructive with regard to who the Lord declares His disciples. And it's also very instructive as stating who belongs to the family of God. So, of course, it is, as all Scripture is, a very important portion of our text uh, that we want to consider this morning. Uh, Look with me at verse 46. It says, While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto them that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister, and mother. Who are my brethren, is the question that is being asked. This is the first mention that Matthew makes of Jesus' brothers. Uh, They are also mentioned in the other three Gospels, also mentioned in the book of Acts. As we begin, just kind of as a side note here, Uh, The fact that Jesus is identified as having those who are considered his brethren is obviously the reality that Mary, as their mother, uh, has caused a great amount of trouble. Again, I don't want to beat this drum for very long, but it has dealt quite a blow to those of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's important that I mention this this morning because the Roman Catholic Church has a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary. And what that doctrine states is that they teach that after Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, she remained a virgin until the day she died. Uh, there is absolutely no foundational scripture foundation in the Bible. Uh, instead, the evidence actually points that these verses from Matthew strongly refute the position of the Catholic Church of this perpetual virginity. Now we understand that even we as believers, as what we identify today as Reformed Baptists, we certainly historically have recognized uh, that the Lord's mother, Mary, is one of the uh, great uh, women who walked the face of the earth. And because of her calling by God to bring forth our Savior, uh, certainly uh, she is mentioned in that vein. But we have never, nor will ever teach, that Mary is an object of worship. Uh, We will never say that Mary is to be 
objectified, to be lifted up. We will not say a prayer to Mary. Uh, We're not going to sing hymns to Mary. Uh, We're not going to put her in a place that God clearly has not put her. She is not an object of worship. Now, the Roman Catholic Church says that they do not worship. They only have what's called veneration for her. They only mean to respect her and revere her. But yet the Catholic Church has shrines to Mary all over the world. Uh, Nearly every Catholic parish, every Catholic church you go into, you will find a statue or some sort of a shrine that is given over to Mary. It is not there for the artist's work. It is there because she is an object of worship. Uh, She is often prayed to. Sometimes she's prayed to before the Lord Jesus Christ. They come in the name of Mary before they come even in the name of Christ. Uh, John Calvin himself said that the difference that the Roman Catholic distinction seems to make between revering her and worship is a distinction without a difference. So he's basically saying that what you call veneration, what you call uh, just respect is actually worship. So there is this picture that is important that we need to think about where we don't find scripturally where we worship Mary. Uh, Nothing in scripture teaches us that we are to worship her. Now that leads us into, by way of an introduction this morning, as to why what this event that took place is so very important. It may seem as if that part doesn't belong with the narrative, the question that's being asked, who are my brethren? Now, uh, if you've read through this passage and you stop and you meditate on this for any period of time, you're going to have some unanswered questions and you're going to have some things you're going to wonder, what in the world is he talking about? There seems to be Jesus putting almost a disrespect uh, towards Mary, towards his brethren, Uh, There seems to be an identifying of where he clearly says, I'm not acknowledging them right now. And there's an acknowledgement where I have to say that for many, many years, I never realized that in the part where he actually points his hand, he points to his disciples and he actually makes a pretty stirring statement. He said, that's my mother. That's my brethren. Clearly, his mother was one of the ones asking for him, but he points to the disciples and he said, that's my mother. Now, if that doesn't strike you as a bit strange, I don't know how else to strike you, but that's extremely interesting because it leads us to a number of questions that we need to look at this morning. So notice again, verse 46, it says, while he yet talked with the people. Behold, his mother and brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Now, we're going to look at some support text in just a moment, but I will, I'll plead with you today just to, to let me go through this narrative first, and then we're going to fill in some of the gaps and the questions that will make us say, but what about this? What we do know by taking another account in one of the other Gospels into hand is that the members of Jesus' family, including Mary, had come to take Jesus away from the situation in which he was in because the people began to accuse Jesus of being mad or what the translation I'm using will show us, that he is beside himself. That somehow Jesus is getting agitated and he's getting worked up and his brethren and his mother have come to take him away. Now, we don't fully see this 
unpacked throughout Scripture, but no doubt the Pharisees during their interactions with Jesus, no doubt would have spoken and talked often about, have you heard of this man Jesus? And have you seen the way that he speaks? And have you seen the way that he talks? And have you seen what he's saying about various things? What he's saying about the kingdom of God, what he's saying about salvation, what he's saying about righteousness. The Pharisees had no doubt had represented Jesus's ministry as something that you better put a stop to this because this man is coming apart. This man is saying foolish things. Now what is really instructive in what we read in Matthew 10 and part into John 7 is that, and this is by way of a very quick application, Sometimes our greatest hindrance to the very work of God can appear to come from those who are closest to us. Sometimes friends will hinder what we are supposed to be doing. Jesus' brethren and mother were not coming in the sense that they wanted to destroy Jesus or not have him teach, but they were responding to what was happening and that people were the Pharisees especially were saying, this man is beside himself. And as family would do, you would come and attempt to remove your family member out of that situation. That's really what I believe was happening here is that Mary and the brethren were coming to remove him. But it's very instructive that the Bible actually says that they asked for Jesus while he was talking with the people. Now, this is not your casual over coffee conversation. This is he is proclaiming the truth. He is preaching. And they wanted him then. Notice the use of the word, while he yet talked to the people, behold, or look, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. There's a request made by his mother and his brethren to be called away from the ministry or the work in which he was sent here to do. He's engaged in the preaching of the kingdom of God. He's engaged in the preaching of the word. He's engaged in the ministry of the disciples. He's being called away or attempted to be called away from the work in which he has been given by the Father. Now I want you to notice, and we'll talk about this in a moment, Jesus does not respond to their request. He does not drop what he's saying and leave, but he does take the opportunity to teach a very important principle, which is really the subject and the basis of this narrative. Did Mary intend to disrupt the earthly ministry of Jesus? Did the brethren mean to disrupt? Well, when we look at the support passages, I would say that they were not trying to attempt to hinder him in a sense. They were trying to get him out of there because of the fear of what the Pharisees were saying, this man's gone mad. And as family would do, they would come and try to remove him from that situation. But I did make note of this. There is no question in Scripture that Jesus Christ loved Mary. Okay, he loved her. I mean, at the cross, 
when John and Mary are standing there, he is concerned for Mary's well-being. He is acknowledging who she is, that she was the one who was chosen to carry Christ in the incarnation. Again, these are beautiful things that Mary was chosen to do, yet we're not supposed to worship her. The love of his mother did not turn him aside from the ministry in which he was called to do. Now, some immediately say, well, that's disobedience. Christ is not obeying his mother. But remember, Christ always said the reason that he came is because he came to do the Father's will. That's going to make sense in verse 50 when he says, whosoever does the will of the Father. But our Lord did not allow his love for Mary to turn him away from what he was doing. So the request comes in, in verse 47, Then one said unto him, Now commentators disagree on this, and I'm just going to throw it out there. Many commentators believe that one who said this was possibly a Pharisee. That one of the Pharisees actually said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. I think it's accurate to say that the Pharisees, of course, have, they have something in this. They want the ministry of Jesus to stop. They want the preaching to stop. And they want to tempt them to do and tempt Jesus to move himself away from that which he's called to do. If it was a Pharisee, there certainly could be intent there. If it wasn't a Pharisee, we still see the same outcome. The request is given. Someone says your mother is waiting and your brethren are standing desiring to speak with you. Another commentator said that the Mother, Mary, and the brethren, they sent a person to go ask Jesus and tell him, we want to talk to him. So you can see what's happened. You could see how either one of those could potentially be there. Someone said, Mary said, go tell him, we want to see him. Others say it was a Pharisee that was trying to entrap him. So they desire to speak with him. They desired, the Pharisees, of course, desired to take him. Remember, when we started Matthew 12, the entire plot of the Pharisees begins begins to unfold. It starts from them accusing him of doing wrong things on the Sabbath day, and it comes down to the point where they say, now we're trying to plot to kill him. Our entire plan for Jesus is to kill him. So it's within the realm of certain possibilities that the Pharisees were going to use this event as an opportunity to take him. But you realize it makes us think back to a text in Matthew 8 about even the hindrance of following the Lord. Matthew 8, verses 21 and 22 tells us, And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Uh, This man was asking for the Lord to give him a delay, was asking him to give me time to take care and to bury my father. Again, if you, if you take this the wrong way, you'll think that Jesus must be a cruel despot because he does not let people do and, and go tend to these familial problems. You can see it unfolding. Why, would Jesus, why is Jesus so concerned about a man needing some extra time to go bury his father who's not even dead yet? Why is Jesus seemingly 
unconcerned about the call of Mary, his mother, why does he seem to put it off as if this is of no purpose to me? If Jesus would not allow that man to delay his time to follow Christ, to go bury a father that was dying, why do you think Jesus would allow a request from even his own mother to leave the work that he's doing to go tend to her needs? Can you see the pattern? You can see Jesus is teaching us something about being his disciple and about family relations. Now again, the people who want to say the Bible is so filled with contradictions are just revealing to you they don't fully understand Scripture. These are not contradictions. Jesus is consistent in his teaching about the importance of loving God above even our own earthly families. It's not a hidden secret in Scripture. It is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy might. The disciples of Christ are to love God more than they love even their families. Jesus will always do the proper thing. He came to do the will of the Father. Notice his answer. Jesus very clearly, but he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? So he doesn't reject. Okay, What Jesus is not doing here is he's not rejecting those human family ties. But what he's teaching us is the proper position that our family is to take in the kingdom of God. This is all about the position of what is to be most supreme. He's putting the bonds of family into its proper place, which is under our love for Christ and our love for God. Those who are related to him, what he's going to teach here is that those who are related to him in the bonds of discipleship, those who are truly his, those who truly belong to him, those who are part of the family of God, is the true test of those who are in union with him. In other words, a disciple of Christ who is not your family, that disciple is closer to you than your own family. We tend to, in our human emotions and society, we judge everything often by blood. Are you, quote unquote, blood related? And there comes with that blood relation an inherent obligation and an inherent responsibility that if blood family needs me, I choose them over my superior love for God. Now again, the family is important. Our church is family integrated. It's a term we use intentionally. What that means is, is that our families are all kept together in church services, even our youngest ones and our oldest ones. 
We believe that the family is an important God-given institution and that it is the greatest means in which we have been given to carry out the Great Commission other than the church within our families. I am a huge believer in the importance of family. But I will tell you that sometimes your greatest hindrance to doing what God wants you to do will come from family. Family that will not believe or see or want you to follow Christ supremely and will use the card, you should love your family more than you love God. No. Even you and I, who are believers, who are surrounded, if your family is here or your family's not here, we all individually are to love God more than the person you are seated next to. As a matter of fact, you will not love the person in the family next to you properly unless you love God supremely. There are a lot of family integrated churches that are getting this wrong. It's not family first. It's Christ first. It's God first. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy mind. I wouldn't have church any other way than the way we do it with family integration, but I also understand the proper order. Jesus is setting forth proper order. He's not saying, I hate my mother. I hate my brethren. He's setting the proper order. He points to the disciples. The Bible is so clear, again, for years, maybe in my own willingness to not look at Scripture for what it really says. It clearly says he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples. Again, he's not responded to the request of Mary and the brethren to go to them, but rather he turns, and we don't know which disciples he's pointing to. It's most likely not just the twelve. He's pointed and he says, Behold, look, my mother and my brethren. Now the problem is, Mary's not standing there. And the brethren that request him are not standing there, but yet he says, that's my mother and that's my brethren. Therein is the very mysterious statement that he makes. We need to understand that when we talk about the doctrine of adoption, when we talk about being adopted into the family of God, we're talking about not something that's a good idea, but we're very much talking about the reality of our standing in Christ and our standing in God. To be adopted into the family of God is a closer relation than even your blood family. Or even in the case of an adoption in real life, adoption into a family, a child who did not have a home. It's a beautiful thing. It's wonderful to adopt someone who did not belong to you and bring them into your family and treat them as your own. How needed is that? But adopted into the family of God is on a whole other spiritual plane. Again, he's not rejecting family ties. But all believers in Christ Jesus are part of the family of God. They are the brethren. They are the brothers of Christ. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. 
if, if you remember in our study of Hebrews, and I hope you still remember that, I know this has been a long time ago, but all the way back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it said about the Lord when he, when he thinks about the family of God. Hebrews 2.11, here's what it says. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That speaks of the unity between Christ and his people. He is not ashamed to identify himself with those sinners. Now, if we really understood how bad we are and how depraved we are, that would be one of the most precious truths you've heard in a long time. The fact that the perfect, sunless, perfect sinless Son of God is not ashamed to call you brethren. Now, we know why. Because you've been saved by His righteousness. He is going to present you faultless before God the Father. But what a beautiful statement. When Jesus in Matthew 10 says, Behold my mother and my brethren, he was talking about those that are adopted into the family of God. He's taken this opportunity to show them that there's something even greater than the family that you have. Your adoption into the family of God is greater than all of your earthly relationships. If God didn't want us to have families, he would not have ordained marriage. If God did not want us to have children, he would not have ordained marriage. And we know marriage is of God, no matter what Congress tries to tell you. No matter how many laws that try to redefine what marriage is. The family matters. But understand that the family, even of itself, was not given just so our family ties can be greater than our spiritual ties. They were given that they may be a picture of truly what the love of Christ looks like. A husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, not because it's some emotional, sappy thing, because it gives the greatest demonstration of what Christ did to the people he's not afraid to call brethren. The beauty of what the Lord speaks about here and in other scriptures really shows how tender Jesus is to all of these teachings. He's not ashamed. But his method of acknowledging them was a striking thing because what he's doing is he is setting his spiritual brethren ahead of his earthly mother and his brethren. I will tell you right now, going all the way back to that introduction I gave you on the Roman Catholic Church, this would inflame <laughs> more than you know. It would prove to you how they actually worship Mary. Because they would say, Mary requested. And in some Catholic parishes, they may not say it, they hold Mary in a higher regard than they do the Lord Jesus. And they would say, Jesus should have submitted to Mary because Mary is higher. I've heard it. We don't worship her. We just revere and respect her. Like Calvin said, there's not a distinction. To hold her at that level and to say that Jesus should have done everything when his mother called him and dropped it all would have shown that Mary had authority over Jesus 
and she did not. Imagine us under being able to clearly understand what's happening here. And then Jesus says, and again, prayerfully, your translation has an exclamation point at the end of verse 49. It just adds to the emphasis. Behold my mother and my brethren. It's very powerful and it's direct. And he says, I'm not ashamed to call them this. But again, at the end of what we'll call the chapter, because remember, translators, as versions came out, translators added chapter divisions. The last verse of this quote-unquote chapter says, For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. So what is this? He who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus begins to teach on this truth. Every doer of the Father's will is proved to be a true disciple. We've already witnessed here that he's described as being the brethren of the Lord himself. We are to act in that capacity. These relationships of the doing of the Father's will is based upon a relationship that is there. In other words, the only way I can do the will of the Father is to have that relationship. This is not a works-based salvation verse, which is what it's used for. People who believe in good works use this verse saying, when you, one of the verses you say, well, what verse says I have to work for my salvation? It's based on, they use this verse. The context is, is what Jesus is talking about. He's giving those whosoevers are the ones who are in the family of God to do the will. That's going to be the evidence that they are in the family of God. It's impossible for us to do the will of the Father without having that relationship, without being in the family of God. This is a, this is a bit lengthy, but I won't read it all. But I, I read, again, as I often do, um, John Gill's exposition on this, and he broke this down into phrases. He said, For whosoever shall do the will of, the, of my Father. He said, This is not to be understood of a perfect obedience to the will of God revealed in his righteous law. For since this cannot be performed by any mere man, no one could be in such a spiritual relation to Christ, but of the obedience of faith to the will of God revealed in the gospel, which is to believe in Christ and have everlasting life. This is the will of Christ's Father. The verse goes on and says, which is in heaven. This means this is the good news from heaven to sinners in which Christ came down from heaven to do and to declare to the children of men, hear the word of God and do it. So you understand what's happening here. There is this relationship that is there. There is the accountability that is there, and it's coming from heaven. Next phrase, the same as my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is showing that as dear as those people are, here's what Gil says, as dear to me as such are to those to whom they stood related in the flesh, these natural relations serve to convey some ideas of that relation, union, nearness, and communion, that there is between Christ and his people. 
The, other, the reason that Jesus is using such of a, a statement about the family is he wants us to see just how dear being adopted into the family of God really is. Because when we think about our families, there aren't many things more dear to us than that. All those who are able to do the Father's will are those who are in the position to do His will. At first glance, of course, this response seems as if it is dishonoring to His family. However, as we see by way of application, Jesus was doing nothing more than being about His Father's will and about His Father's business. Now, whether it was an intentional thing by the Pharisees or it was the the, 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 the mother, Mary, and the brethren just trying to get him out of that, you realize Jesus was not going to be turned away from doing the Father's will. No matter how dear the relationship is. It's in the Gospel of Mark, and I mentioned to you, I would show this to you, Mark chapter 3 is where this backfill takes place. Where it says, here's the reason why the request came only it's mentioned as friends. But in Mark 3, verse 21, it says, And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. Jesus, in that opposition by those leaders, people began to say, This man is insane. Go get him out of there. But you realize that when the gospel talks about this, not long after that, we see in Mark 3, verse 31, the same account we just read in Matthew 12. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother, or who or my brethren? And he looked around about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. So Mark fills in a little bit of the blanks that said this is the reason they primarily sent for him. Jesus, as he always did, took opportunity for a teaching moment. This moment, by stretching out his hand, he declared the very clear and also very precious truth of our adoption into the family of God. That adoption was not started by us. It wasn't chosen by us. We didn't even want it. And yet, in his tender mercy, he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. To be adopted, the child very, very rarely, if ever, has a choice of which home and which parents to go to. They don't usually give the child a choice. Many times the child is so small, the child has no ability to even choose for themselves, even if they could. But the father and the mother that go into that agency or whatever it is, they choose that child for themselves and they take that child and they welcome them into their family and they're treated as if they, have, they are blood relatives. But folks, the beauty of the doctrine of adoption is very much that. 
We have been called out of darkness, out of our depravity, into his marvelous light, not because of our value, not because of what we would add, but because of his mercy before the foundation of the world, he loved us. There's, there is no more precious adoption in all the world than your adoption into the family of God. As precious as an adoption of a child is, and with the recent developments of what's happened over the last month or so, there might be children all over the place that need to be adopted. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thought. But please don't ever lose sight that there's been no more beautiful adoption than when you were adopted into the family of God and you did nothing to earn it and you're doing nothing to keep it. And Jesus is not saying, do not have love for your family, do not have love for them. And folks, I will tell you again, your family should be precious to you. Your family should be something you treat with, do not take each other for granted. Do not assume you will always be here. Do not always assume you'll be together. Do not always assume that life is going to go on without any problems, because it is. Hold your family high. Love your family. But I'm telling you, you can be guilty of worshiping your family and putting your family in front of God. I've seen it happen. You're to love God supremely. Jesus is simply teaching that. That's the proper order. Not that I hate Mary. Not that I hate my brethren. No. I want you to keep the proper order. It is those who do the will of my Father, which is the same as my brother. So two quick things. These words of our Lord do not lessen the importance of our family. But they do show us once again how Jesus regarded a love for Him more important than love of family members. We read in our Scripture reading, Matthew 10, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He makes a similar point here by identifying his disciples. These disciples are as my mother, my brothers, and my sister. Yes, Jesus was the earthly son of Mary. If you look at it that way, that's the earthly son of Mary. He honored her. He loved her. Again, as I mentioned to you, John 19, verse 26 and 27, he made provision for John to take care of his mother. But in a much higher sense, Jesus understood that he, as the son of God, was declaring that all of those who put their trust in him, they truly do become his brothers and his sisters. Folks, it's only when you are truly converted that you can do the will of God. It's only when you're truly redeemed that you can do the will of God. You do the will of God because you've been adopted by the Father. You have that relationship. Our Lord, as He often did, even this, even though it's not counted as a direct conflict with the Pharisees, is again putting to death all of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees' ideas. What's he pointing to? He's pointing even deeper that the flesh, even fleshly relationships, when compared to the spirit and the kingdom of God, profit nothing. 
When you see scripture that says the flesh profiteth nothing, it's, it's in so many different realms, but the flesh has no profit to your spiritual standing. Your familial ties have no ties to your spiritual standing. You realize even Mary and the brethren had to come to faith in Christ. We tend to believe that, sadly, Mary got a pass. Well, you study the life of Mary and you find out that Mary had to believe herself. Christ clearly shows us that the flesh, he doesn't know people by the flesh. And you, you're not going to come to know him by the flesh. Like we studied in our study this morning at 10 o'clock, you're not going to know Christ by your human wisdom. You're not going to know Christ by your intellect. Your flesh is not going to profit you anything to coming to know Christ. But what is, is understanding that the only way we can hope to know Christ is to be born into the family of God, to be adopted into his family. The will of the flesh will always be, as Jesus had to tell his disciples. When he told them in the garden, he said, stay here. And they fell asleep. The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It doesn't want to do the things that God requires. I hope today this will help us clear up what Jesus is saying about these family relationships. But more importantly, your family relationship that you have on this earth, and I know this isn't grand theologically, might be a disaster. But do you realize that there's a family, the family of God, that if a man or a woman will repent of their sins and will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and come unto him, he will in no wise cast out. He will take you into his family. He's calling to those who are without to repent and believe the gospel. Not later, not tomorrow, not next week. Repent and believe the gospel today. If you've already believed in Christ, then you are in the family of God. And I trust that we that are in Christ will keep our priorities proper. As much as we love our families, do we truly love God supremely? Is he truly who we love more than anyone else? Let's conclude our time this morning by singing, I think, an appropriate hymn. Again, one that we sing often, and I think it's one that speaks to us every time we sing it. 388, He Will Hold Me Fast.